Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. In continuing the month's theme of space and alien horror, this week tackles one of the more beloved cult offerings out there, that being Paul W.S. Anderson's 1997 film Event Horizon. Event Horizon centers around an experimental spaceship of the same name reappearing after being lost in space for seven years. An investigatory team led by Captain Miller, played by Lawrence Fishburne, and his crew are assisted by the ship's designer, Dr. William Weir, played by Sam Neill, and the group must decipher the ship's mysterious reappearance. Though it doesn't take long for the ship's horrifying past to catch up to them. And joining me today to chat, Event Horizon, is Cultured Vultures film editor and Rotten Tomatoes-proved critic Natasha Alva. Natasha, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> no problem. You know, this is... Part of what I love about doing the podcast and having, you know, guests on is that we connect through either, you know, our point of origin of introduction, which would be, you know, cultured vultures, or it's the type of thing where just online, I see people talking about movies, just something that they're revisiting, whether it be something from their childhood, something that they watched the same year. And, you know, through chatting with you about Fresh last time, you know, I always have guests on to chat about their first horror film. That's kind of like the icebreaker question. And so when you mentioned Event Horizon, in the back of my mind, I'm kind of like cataloging like, okay, maybe invite Natasha back to chat about that because, you know, guests typically have a great deal of enthusiasm for that first horror film that stuck with them. But, you know, (laughs) your enthusiasm for it was more like from the corner of just fear that is really like stuck with you uh, with Event Horizon all these years later in a way that um, I really wanted to chat a little bit more in depth about, right? That's the thing with the icebreaker. It's, you know, a couple of minutes, maybe five or 10 minutes at most, but you can't really get to the core of why that movie left such an impact other than maybe, you know, a few memorable scenes. Uh, So I'm really excited to chat about this movie with you in a little more depth. Yeah. <laughs> oh god. I mean, I don't know what um I hope I can contribute some significant um points of <laughs> discourse <laughs> despite the fear, <laughs> despite <laughs> my terror. Um yeah, I if I needed to kind of explain, I guess why it has been so impactful, right? Because you know, thinking about I guess uh sci-fi horror, right? You know, like it's not my favorite sci-fi horror right it's the one that terrifies me the most but you know like my fa- favorite sci-fi horror would be alien right i think it's insurpassable right uh like after i mean it's been it was in the 70s right and you know i, I was like re-watching like some parts of it um and it still looks you know immaculate and so real and you know immersive right um I think the thing, so I mean, when you think about Event Horizon, I guess the realism isn't quite as on point <laughs> compared <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to Alien, right? Uh, it is campy, right? Um, in parts, um, you know, there are moments where you can kind of see that there maybe there were some budget constraints where you can kind of see that, you know, I think like there's a moment in uh, in the movie where, you know, I think, is it, what's her name? Uh, Peters, when she falls, right um and you can kind of tell it's a dummy right so you know there are moments like that but i think 
what it goes back to, right? I think, you know, when we hear Anderson speak about the film, he kind of pitched it as a haunted house movie set in space, right? And I think um, for me, I don't, like that's a kind of niche of horror that I don't really like because usually like haunted house movies deal with like possession and religion and demons <laughs> and hell right so uh has <laughs> a catholic <laughs> uh i don't know the the idea of hell is very real for me i think uh i mean that's what's been ingrained in you know me from from young right basically be a good person <laughs> or burn in hell <laughs> i mean you know i just the idea right so it's uh i mean you you you're always told that you know you can never kind of fathom the the depths of horror that you know await in hell, right? And I think um, this movie brought that fear to life, right? Because I think in other like you know haunted house movies, right, it's a presence, right? It's a demonic presence, you know, um, it's a possession, right? Um, in in this instance, um, you can't escape it, right? Let's so say it's like a haunted house movie, you can physically escape it in some way right i mean maybe the entity might follow you or whatever right but at the same time you you are able to like leave the space you can do something about it but for this one it's because it's set in space uh you know and their ship uh had gone through some kind of damages or something like that right um you know and so i think the idea here is that i can't just walk out of the ship right (laughs) i can't you know if i was in that situation i wouldn't be able to leave right and i think the inescapable nature of it, it was really like terrifying um and the idea of how you couldn't stop what was going to happen right and i think um the cosmic horror of it all right um i mean i'm very i have a vivid (laughs) imagination um but i think the idea of you know when we're says basically you know where we're going you won't need eyes to see right it's just it's so (laughs) it's so because i can't even imagine it right and you know and he's here looking so crazy with his scratched out eyes and all the marks on his um body right uh and he's just mutilated right and he's saying it right um you know and i mean has i think you know if i was more skeptical i guess almost in a girl i would say like oh my god this dude is like this you know those campy kind of antagonists who's just like chewing scenery right and declaring all these kind of things right but uh, at the same time, I don't know, just the idea of his eyes being scratched out was also really, like, horrifying. So the, the whole idea of, like, horror going beyond what you can see, right? Uh, horror kind of invading your mental space. I think that is frightening to me because I think um, these are the things you can't control, right? Like, you know, if you, if you have nightmares, right, you know, um, you can't do anything about it until you wake up. Right. Um, you know, whereas like, you know, if it's a serial killer, at least I can I can kick the guy in, in the nuts or something. I can do <laughs> right. something, you yeah. know. So I think it's the the lack of agency, um, you know, facing all these characters in the film and being psychologically tortured, uh, you know, and then kind of wanting to die so to so to not you know um, experience that horror is what I think frightened me so even though there was a part of me I think watching it aware that it's a movie um, at the same time there is a part of me that's also aware that you know as people as humanity there's so much we don't know about what exists right you know and I think um, 
yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think I would like to know that, you know, when I die, <laughs> there's something good waiting for me, right? But it's it's still a huge um, sense of uncertainty and the unknown, right? So I think um, that's what has stuck with me all these years. I don't know. I don't, I mean, I can't think of uh, another movie that comes close to dealing with it because I do, I do think there are a lot of kind of a lot of movies that deal with cosmic horror, right? And, you know, um, but I don't, the way the film grappled with it in that, in that sense, you know, so the idea of that sight, that seeing, you know, that um, themes and motifs in the, in the movie, I think that's what has gripped me all these years and, you know, still terrifies me till this day. Yeah. yeah. No, it, th- those are all fantastic points. And I, what I want to, focus on first is sort of Anderson's playing around with the genre and tropes and these things. I mean, when this movie came out, it was not well received, right? It was not only considered a critic fail, critical failure, but uh, financial failure as well, because it was 60 million budget and it looks like it had a $42 million box office on like Rotten Tomatoes. It rocks a 30% based on 80 plus reviews. And, you know, w- even in revisiting it, you're able to really piece all of those kind of call out those tropes, call out these different, you know, motifs and these things. But it really, for me, and what has allowed it to really withstand that test of time is just how, sure, you can easily identify all those different things. You know, you can, the mad scientist, the sort of blue collar and space crew that is resistant to anything they have to say. And then, you know, playing around with the idea of evil that is unspeakable, that's unseeable to the degree you want to claw your eyes out. But the way in which Anderson combines all of those things that are all very traditional along the lines of like a haunted house movie, but he puts it in this really isolating and terrifying setting. I mean, like you, I was really, really taken with the idea of not being able to leave the haunted house, if you will. Um, And, you know, sometimes in haunted house movies that are set on earth, it's like, well, there's a spell or something stopping them from leaving, but they're still on earth, right? There's still the, the idea that somebody could come and save them in the 12th hour, if you will. But when you're, you know, light years and light years away in space and there's no rescue crew coming that don't even know where you are at that point, probably, it adds another layer of just the fear of isolation. And I attribute a lot of space horror the same way that I do like deep sea horror, that idea that it's very easy to become lost. If you lose track of any one sort of little landmark and you spin around in a circle, you don't know where you are anymore. And this this fact that like, okay. There's help is not coming. It's not readily available, which then, if anything, kind of just removes the the character's ability to like have a backup plan almost. And it's kind of like, well, you're going to deal with what comes as it does. And there's not a whole lot of options left for you. Um, I think also, you know, the budget it being like a $60 million movie does help it in a lot of ways that it essentially makes for like what I find to be one of the best haunted houses of all time, that being the event horizon and how, you know, it captures an element of space horror that I really love, which is not the glitz and the glam of Star Wars or Star Trek, right? It it draws a lot of inspiration, I think, from, you know, you mentioned Alien, right? The set design in that movie is immaculate because it feels real. It feels like a, a time that people are over space travel, really. It's kind of like the 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 nuts and bolts of a ship, and there's no there's no big star bridge that's fancy and all of these things. Yeah. It feels like it's basically an 18-wheeler in space, which <laughs> is kind of what I love about this movie because it yeah. doesn't make for an environment that feels, you know, optimistic about space travel. It doesn't feel like, oh, this should be a big deal that you're in space. It feels like an oppressive 
shitty place that people would not want to work because, you know, there's also the realization that they've left their families behind on Earth. And that plays into some of the characters' backgrounds and inevitably the type of, you know, horrors that await them in the event horizon the further into the movie that we get. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think you 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 mentioned a really good point, I think, is the idea of um the actors feeling like real people. I think a lot of the time, I mean... Like if you think about like you know maybe um a recent sci-fi horror like uh life with uh Jake Gyllenhaal and Ryan Reynolds and all that right it it feels like it feels too glitz and glamour it feels too movie star uh driven right all is like all this bunch of people that you know look so good <laughs> and you know <laughs> right. and yeah and you know you have like and Ryan Reynolds is just Ryan Reynolds right you can't escape the celebrity of all these people right and i think sometimes it it kind of um doesn't allow for that immersion right and i think it kind of then because of that places a a, a distance a skeptical distance between the film and the viewer right and i think the further i am from you know the content of the film right um then i i will not be as scared right because i'm just aware that it's not real i think the the more the film can make me feel that you know this is possible this is real right then you know the deeper your fears can be like, and i think it makes for a, you know a more effective horror yeah yeah that's why i think that you know anderson's use of a lot of genre tropes and character tropes and these things it works for me because you know it's very easy to identify but the first 30 minutes of the movie really does set you up to know a decent amount of these characters. Again, you might be able to kind of prescribe a lot of these very simplistic descriptions of them, right? I mean, Peters is the the one that's the parent that misses their child. You have Cooper, yeah. who's like the jokester, who's never afraid to, you know, try to lighten up the mood no matter what they're dealing with. And then, of course, you have Captain Miller, who is, you know, this this hard knocks kind of just like, you're here to do a job and I'm going to get us and keep us on track. And at the same time, though, you know, dedicating enough time that you can prescribe those very simplistic descriptions to them, it does inform you more about them. So while, you know, they might essentially be kind of meat for the grinder that's the event horizon, you still get the sense of who they are, that they don't come off as more just like generic fodder. Um, And I found that that goes a great deal into why the psychological aspects that get picked up more and more and more heavily in the second half of the film, why those work so well, and it's why those scares don't necessarily feel kind of like those stock standard jump scares, like, oh, something fell from the ceiling of the haunted house again, or or a door slammed, and I don't know where it came from, or something like that. Um, I think there's a good deal of time that's dedicated to the personalities of these characters, and then, more importantly, the scares that follow that up later follow that same sort of blueprint, right? It's matching that up where, sure, you have a few jump scares early on, but Primarily, it's the aspect of, you know, cosmic horror or just haunting horror in general, where it's like it's very personal. And that personal nature of it only works if you do a decent amount of legwork and just establishing these characters. Because if you didn't, like, who cares about the fact that she's seeing like a creepy little ghost child, right? It's kind of just adding that extra layer of, you know, relating it to the characters, which makes it, you know, that much more upsetting when it actually does happen. Yeah. And I think um, I think a lot of um, the film also kind of builds around a really good use of tension, because I think it's never quite explained like what exactly is going on with her child. Like she she looks at the photo, right? Um, you know there is some 
uh, interaction with it. And then after that, we see the, the boy appearing in the ship, right? Um, but we don't exactly know like what the nature of the entire haunting is. You know, did he die? Did, um, did something? I mean, I don't know, right? I think, and that kind of like fuels my interest as well, right? Because I'm like, you know, what exactly happened, right? What is haunting her, right? With regard to her child, right? Um, you know, and I think the same thing with Miller, right? Um, you know, with, with the man he keeps seeing, right? The burned man, uh, you know, and at the same, so it's the same thing. We, we don't really know like why, right? And then, you know, later on, it's kind of pieced together with the, I think one of the most beautiful monologues I think I've ever heard, in a film when he's talking about fire at zero zero gravity. Do you remember that scene? Uh Laura, I mean Lawrence Fishburne is so I mean it's almost Shakespearean <laughs> in the way he delivers it. Um I don't know. I, it kind of reminded me of what um, I think when Anderson was talking about his inspiration for a lot of I think um the crew footage, right? When they were shooting it, I think he talked about um, the inspiration being like paintings by Bosch and Bruegel, right? And um, the, you know, what he kind of observed is, you know, this basically this kind of um, really horrifying kind of images, but also very beautiful. And he wanted to kind of, you know, you know, um, kind of um, play it out in the film in some way, right? So I, it, it acutely reminds me of that scene with uh, Lawrence Fishburne when he talks about fire at zero gravity and he talks about leaving a man to die and that's horrific, right? Uh, you know, but the way he, he, he speaks about it, the way he describes it, it's so beautiful, right? Um, you know, and like there are these little moments that I think um, explains why, you know, the film developed such a cult classic kind of status right years later right and i guess the tales in the urban i don't know all the myths right and all the you know the legends of the un the, the cut footage right has just kept it you know in people's minds all these years yeah well that's the thing again i always come back to the fact that this largely is you know a genre movie that's filled with genre moments and you know it's pieced together by a lot of different elements that you've probably seen elsewhere previously. But, you know, talking about the core cast of characters, right? This is Lawrence Fishburne's top billing, of course, so Sam Neill. But for the most part, like the rest of the crew are this assortment of like character actors, actors that are a little less known that would never rise really to a prominence of those two leads. But they all sell their roles and their performances, I find, in a way that really fits for this type of movie. And, you know, sometimes... Certain characters might, uh, like Lawrence Fishburne, might have a, an air of gravitas that seems almost too serious for the type of movie that they're making at the end of the day. But it works for that role of him being the leader, of him taking any experience he's had and talking about it in a Shakespearean manner. Which you know, <laughs> you, you think about cutting then from that to like Cooper, who's like making jokes about like innuendo jokes about like, oh, do you want something black in you? And he's holding coffee or something, and you know it's. <laughs> I love that the movie has these kind of silly levels to it, but at the same time, like it works in the scene, in the moment, and it's informed by what little you know about the characters at the very start of the movie, but they really do kind of fall into those roles in a way that feels very natural, that feels like it keeps the movie on the tracks for that opening 30 minutes in a way that if it didn't have that time dedicated to it and those characters and establishing sort of their personalities, then it might just feel like another 
haunted house movie where we have to get a jump scare in the first five minutes or people fall asleep or sort of just these very kind of like a bombardment of exactly what you'd expect from a haunted house movie. So I think that the way this movie is structured is partially what might have actually like confused audiences back in the day because it has a setup that feels like a very traditional space movie or space disaster movie. And then, of course, when it goes off the rails, if you're not expecting something along those lines, it's kind of like, well, I thought this was going to be one thing. And then it goes into what maybe some critics <laughs> trying to be generous don't want to you know, do too much <laughs> armchair critics from you know uh, 20 plus years ago. But it's the type of thing that when the movie really does delve into the horror genre moments and elements, and it makes for this insane sort of roller coaster, maybe some people just weren't expecting that because of how straightforward and how familiar maybe the setup is. But if anything, I think that's what makes the horror elements work so much better than if it, again, had had little reliance on the characters and their you know personal struggles previously and what they're currently dealing with. Yeah. I mean, wasn't there something about how I think when it came out, it was a summer, it came out in summer and it was supposed to be a summer blockbuster, but, uh, and it was being marketed as such, I think, but people went in and they were like, okay, this is not a summer blockbuster. So I think, uh, maybe I think they're in kind of, um, played into I think the movie's reception as well uh, definitely what you said about the expectation uh, you know and thinking you know what a sci-fi you know movie in space would entail and then going into it and just being like okay <laughs> I'm watching people be mutilated that's fun so um, yeah and I think I think that kind of because when I watched it I was really young and I think uh, it was playing on, you know, a local channel and uh, my parents were there and we were just watching it, you know, um, in a happenstance kind of way, right? You know, um, didn't really think anything about it. It was just like, oh, you know, recognizable faces. Oh, we know Sam Neill. We know Lawrence Fishman. Oh, looks like, you know, one of those, um, you know, regular movies, right? And then my parents fall asleep and then I'm scarred for life, right? So I think it, it was also like, you know, when you're watching it, you didn't, you didn't, expect it, I guess, to go where it goes, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that it's funny that we've been talking about it and it seems that like people had an idea in their mind of this being almost something akin to like Solaris, right? It's like people in space dealing with something strange that you would never encounter on earth, but you're in this isolated setting. And what the movie really kind of evolves into is kind of Hellraiser in space, right? And the fact that you get all this horrific imagery, but you know, I, again, I keep coming back to that opening 30 minutes because every time I rewatch the movie, it reinforces how well of a job they do at making this cosmic horror. Um, because the first 30 minutes of the movie is largely spent discussing, you know, explaining the technology, which is basically an exposition dump, but talking about, you know, the first person that comes into contact with this gravity drive that essentially kind of like redefines space travel more so than it already is. And starts talking about, you know, the fact that what they saw is unimaginable, right? You have that before that they're there because they found this SOS signal, which again is kind of like, don't ever respond to one of those in space because it's never going (laughs) to end well. Um, But I really, really like that they talk about the cosmic horror elements, but it's still very unknowable, right? It's more alluding to the fact that they saw something so horrific that 
you wouldn't question why somebody wants to shoot themselves out of the airlock, right? Which I think is more terrifying than if you lead with, you know, actually seeing what happens to the crew and, you know, the hallucinations and how gruesome those get towards the end of the movie. But I always find the most effective cosmic horror is the tension that's built from just describing something that you can't yourself actually describe, but you describe the emotions that seeing this unknowing thing causes you. And like that to me is something that's very, very disturbing is the distress you can feel from something that you can't properly articulate to another person to the point where you're like, well, the only relief reprieve from this is, you know, shooting myself out of the airlock or meeting a similar uh, demise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it does really well with, um, like you say, right. I think the first 30 minutes kind of set up um, the crew really well. Um, The relationships feel very believable. Um, we believe that they've been working together for a while, right? Um, you know, and I think it it adds to you know the atmosphere that everyone's unhappy about having to come back, <laughs> yep. right? You know, and and do this work, you know. So it doesn't glamorize like space travel, right? You know, in like other movies where you know they have all these wide-eyed astronauts mm. <laughs> ready for Fancy space uniforms. travel, <laughs> yeah, you know. And then you have these people who are just like, oh God, we're here to do a job, right? And you know, and this guy because of this guy's ship, right? We are basically inconvenienced. Um, but yeah, it's like what you say. I think the I think what is sometimes missing from um, some of the movies that I watch these days is really the knowing how to build tension and knowing how to keep the viewers invested. Like, you know, the whole, um, you know, what happened to the previous crew, right? Is a recurring kind of um, mystery that occurs throughout the, throughout the movie right the moment we get there we're like okay so if the ship came back what happened to the crew right and then we we you know there's there's a log so you're like okay so we want to see the log and then the log is you know it's um it's so buggy right they can't they can't decipher anything except you know this very garbled phrase right you know and then later on you know it comes back again and they're trying to you know scrub it they're trying to do things to it and they keep talking about it but you know we never quite see it and then you know so it goes back to what you were saying right talking about it around it um you know and then little bits of the puzzle coming in uh you know each time they they speak about it yeah um and I think the part where Jason Isaacs, <laughs> Lucius Malfoy, <laughs> is um, <laughs> talking about uh, the 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 I mean the Latin translation, right? And then you know, and he talks about how um, he had gotten it wrong, right? And I think the real you know the real um, what he was saying that was horrifying to me. I think <laughs> learning that you know uh, initially it was I think uh, save us, which you know, sounded normal. <laughs> and then after that, it was save yourself. And so it, I don't know, it just made it more horrifying. I know it's just one word change, right? But um, it it um, it kind of played to the sense of like, you, you once again, you can't even imagine what has happened to these people, you know? And I think, um, wasn't there, I, I can't remember, did they show the crew before? Did we manage to see it some before? I don't believe so, no. Because I think the first time we actually see the crew is, you know, when they're when they're doing what they're doing in that video towards the end, once they finally scrub it. I do, I do think that then I remember that they knew that the captain could speak that it was Latin because he had spoke he had said some Latin thing, like there was one um there was a before when they were about to go, 
and I oh, maybe there I, was a transmission that cut out briefly or something. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I can't remember where it was in the the film. But I think seeing that before, you know, um, images of the the crew and you know, um, and how it's so reminiscent of, I guess, of of them, right? You know, um, and after that, <laughs> the brutality of what occurs to them, yeah, um, that transition I think is also really horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we have to mention that Jason Isaac kind of drops the uh, the translation ball there. That's a pretty big blunder that <laughs> does end up being well, terrifying. Yeah. But at the same time, it's just yeah. like, dude, if you if you if your Latin's not one hundred percent, maybe just like sit on that translation for a minute and think about it a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, they made it believable because he's they a doctor, did. right? Yeah. Uh, so it makes sense that he would know Latin. But mm. I mean, it was so garbled. I guess that's why he couldn't. He couldn't hear what he was, uh, you know, and then it's so hilarious on one hand because Lawrence Richmond is just like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's great because like there's all these things that are happening and then you have Lawrence Richmond who's steady, who is stoic, right, who is, you know, um, almost fierce, right, you know, um, in the way he is. And then it's it's so great to have that moment where he breaks and he's just like, can I swear? <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, he says, "Fuck this shit," right? <laughs> it was cathartic, I think. You know, because I think often when we watch this kind of movies, um, we don't see that, right? Like, you know, we don't always see the characters basically just saying what we've been thinking all along, right? You know, just like get out, right? Let's get out of here, right? So I think, um, I think. I think that moment is always a moment which elicits a lot of laughs. People always laugh at it. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that fuck this moment too is following, again, playing around with subgenre and specifically haunted house horror and that inevitably, what is everybody's solution? We have to burn the house down, right? And instead of that, it's, we're going to blow up this multi-billion trillion dollar spaceship, which again, I just, I love that Anderson was able to take a lot of elements that have already been well-established and you know, in most cases, it seems done to death, right? But he takes that blueprint and he changes the setting. And it's not even just that, you know, he's changing the setting, but he has a good deal of personality, I find, that comes through in this. It makes it, you know, at least visually look distinctive. Um, and that's when I come back to, like, the set design of this movie, which I really, really love. You know, it, it there have been countless films that have looked at the very you know, industrial uh, ship design of something like Alien, right? Of the Nostromo. And they're like, well, we'll just do that. And to some extent, you know, Event Horizon does have that. It's got these long sort of dark, dingy hallways and corridors. And there's, you know, condensation leaking and steam shooting out everywhere. But it goes a step further in being unique and, you know, thinking about the uh, the hyperdrive room or the gravity drive room, right? Where you see this horrific, like almost orb that's ever rotating and you know light is pouring out of it but it's not even just that it's that you look around at the walls and there's like massive spikes sticking out of the wall which yeah. like what is what is the purpose of that probably <laughs> nothing other than to look scary but i just love that it's a film that really does revel in capitalizing on the fact that like this is an oppressive environment even if you're in space you don't have to be you know under the ocean or in a cavern to feel the oppressive world kind of like closing in on you. You can do that in space in a way that is terrifying and that looks different or distinctly different than, uh, you know, a lot of the elder statesmen of space horror, if you will. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I don't know where I read, um, but basically I think uh, he talked about how uh, gothic cathedrals mm. were a huge inspiration, I think, for the set design and how some parts of the ship looked. So I think you, you can kind of get that vibe, uh, especially from the core uh, and the way it was designed and the way it looks. Um, I, I like the fact that the ship feels big. Like um, they were able to kind of, you know, create... Um, that effect right it kind of made it really made us feel like you know this ship is just uh immense right in the way that they would walk extensively from this space to this space you know and each i think space was designed really well um to suit whatever you know you needed to suit right um i think in comparison to like other you know more modern kind of movies you can kind of tell that everything's been shot in like a studio right like yeah. um, you know, in like a limited, it it feels um the space feels constrained in some way. Even if the ship is supposed to feel you know big and magnified, whereas for this one, I could feel the you know the extent of the space, right? Um, and that kind of made it scarier because it's like there's all these parts perhaps that they haven't even explored yet, you know. Um, and you know who God knows what awaits, right? You know, um, and what they might stumble into, yeah, um. Yeah, but I think I would have been out of there the moment I saw when we entered they entered the ship and they saw some blood. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been gone. <laughs> I yeah. would not have been like, okay, let's try and see if anyone survived. <laughs> let's try to bring the ship. I would have been like, okay, guys, this is blood. Like, we need to go, right? Yeah. So um, they, they kind of mentioned it, but I think they, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They didn't really take it seriously. I don't know. At that point, right? Um, yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is why I became a teacher. I cannot like <laughs> go into space. I think I think I would freak out there. Like even if we are just going to the moon, I'll be like, who knows? You know, the dark side of the moon. Like I don't know. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, setting like that where you know cu- communication is cut off. Like that's yeah. a terrifying concept. You know, uh, I would compare. You know, what I go to visit family that live like out in the country. And so sometimes when I'm out there, I don't have like cell reception for long stretches of time, which is like a nice retreat. But at the same time, I know that if I need something, there's, you know, a store 10 minutes down, 15 minutes down the road. So it's isolation, but it's chosen isolation. Whereas the concept of being somewhere and being isolated, but knowing that you have no semblance of help. Like I think even they say, um, did we send our coordinates back to let you know the equivalent of NASA, I guess, know where they are? And they say yes, but it's like, okay, so they know where you are at one point, but how long does it take for help to get there? Yeah. Are they going to send in another vessel like this? How long is that going to take? How long is it to train a crew, get a ship, prepare all of these different things? And there's something about being stranded out in the middle of nowhere, like space, or even you know, it's why I love um, 47 meters down. And for a shark movie, because it captures that feeling of, you know, being on the ocean floor, not being able to really identify where you are and help who knows if it's going to come or not. And your communication is cut off. Um, I just find that that's something that allows this movie to have an extra layer of tension that, again, I don't find traditional haunted house horror movies have because it's like, well, generally, you know that help is on the other side of the door, whether or not you can actually get out yourself. It's, you know, the illusion of hope is there. Whereas yeah. in deep space, uncharted deep space, in some cases, um, it's it's not even viable. 
which makes the horror that they're dealing with a lot more immediate, I find, because it's just much more bleaker. It's a bleaker set of uh, uh, predicaments that they find themselves in. Yeah, and I think I think the massacre level is also on, on another level because I think if you think about haunted house movies, I think usually like maybe it's just one or two, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the person who gets possessed or who gets targeted, right? And then, you know, the family suffers as a result, right? So that's usually uh, what happens, right? But uh, in 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 this one, it, it feels, uh, it's just this unstoppable massacre. And it's like, you know, it's only a matter of time before you're done, right? And um, yeah, you know, I mean, there is this sense of um, futility because I don't think anyone's going to come and rescue them. Right, I think, uh, I think, I don't know. There's this sense of I don't know whether they they spoke about like budget cuts and things like that, but uh, it felt like um, the company that had employed them, uh, you know, was a bit dodgy ethically, right? And um, and that they wouldn't be saved, right? No one would really come for them in time, right? Or even at all, right? So I think that doomed the sense of doom was, you know, prevalent throughout. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and I don't know. I think, I I think sometimes I liked. I think sometimes uh, I think because of some parts, like quite a chunk was like taken out, right? In terms of the script, the script was shortened. Uh, you know, a lot of the footage was taken out. So sometimes I feel that you know that it's actually more to the characterization, but we didn't get to see it because of the fact that lots had been cut out. Like I don't know that there is this weird antagonism between um, Jolie Richardson's character and Lawrence Fishburne. Like, he's very hard uh, on her and he scolds her, like, a lot. But I'm, so I'm like, you know, so that kind of also, I mean, even though it's, you know, it's, uh, I guess it would have been nice to kind of find out why or if this was intentional. Um, But uh, it kind of also piqued my interest. I think a lot of these like un- unexplained things um, going on. I think, I mean, when we meet people in real life, right, you, you're not going to know every single thing about every, every, every about them, right? There mm. is some level of the unknown, right? And that kind of um, piqued my interest. So all these little, you know, unexplained things, right? You know, um, like I think if there had been I think like for Baby Bear, uh, I think there was supposed to be more about his backstory and, you know, possibly what happened to him in the call. But, you know, because a lot so much is cut out, right? We don't actually know anything um, besides, you know, the the fact that he decides to do what he does instead of, you know, being there, right? Um, So... I, I, I don't know, it, it kind of interests me more than it irks me, you know. Uh, I like uh, the fact that you don't kind of get to find out everything. Um, Jolie Richardson also did say that I think um, while filming it, uh, a lot of them didn't actually know what was going on because she said the <laughs> script was unfathomable in some way. It was weird. So, um, but they were all just kind of, you know, on board because they 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 were like, okay, we get to work with like really great people. So, so that was uh, interesting. So it could be that a lot of like the things that I was seeing and feeling was the actors just kind of creating <laughs> some kind of characterization or backstory, um, which I don't know. I did. I just kind of like the whole idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, I guess I'm of two minds of it, right? It's that I would always like to see a director's cut that fleshes out more characters, or in this case, you know, whatever, what it seems a lot of horror fans are clamoring for, which is like the gore cut, right? Where a lot of that stuff was cut out throughout the movie, not only entire scenes, 
but that sequence at the end of the film and whatnot, um, where there, whether it was the bridge scene or you know when Lawrence Fishburne is being given a view of uh, of what's happening to his crew and seeing you know their bodies being uh, horrifically mangled in various ways, but at the same time, you know, I am a fan of the theatrical cut because it does leave some of it up to the imagination, right? And that's an element of cosmic horror that I think works so well in that you don't necessarily have to explain everything. It's more so about how what you do see, you know, makes you feel and how effective it is and just showing something in short bursts, perhaps. Because uh, again, it's supposed to be something that's unfathomable. And if you show people too much, then all of a sudden, in my, I guess, I in my case, I find it to be explaining more can actually hurt the final product because when you remove that mystery, it's kind of like, oh, okay, I fully grasp what's going on. I fully grasp what I'm seeing, the ramifications for that. And then I find I don't think about some of those movies as much as I do. Whereas with this movie, I tend to think as straightforward as it is, I think about this movie a lot because of some of the things you mentioned. You know, you can feel the history of that crew, but it's never necessarily explained why, you know, the intricacies of their relationships. Same with, you know, the horror hell elements in the later part of the movie. You get a, a handful of really creepy, really gruesome shots and scenes, but that feels like almost just the tip of the iceberg in the way it's presented. Like, it's so aggressive, it's so over the top that you wonder, oh, could there be anything worse than that? And I think, you know, a movie that's able to show you imagery like that and then still question, is that the extent of this hell dimension or whatnot? I find that that in and of itself is quite terrifying because it's kind of like, well, this is what they're showing me. Imagine what they had to cut or the potential for if you were in that, you know, dimension for a few seconds longer, how much worse could it be? Which, uh, you know, for somebody that loves cosmic horror, that's the element that I think really does capture that essence. And again, I take it back to a majority of the movies people spent describing hell and describing the undescribable or attempting to. And then when you actually get to see that, it has a payoff that if you weren't doing that for a majority of the movie, it just wouldn't be there, regardless of, you know, how gruesome or gory it is. But, you know, I'm appreciative that Anderson goes the distance in terms of, you know, having the setup and then having this really, really successful payoff, even if you know, some people maybe wanted more of that. I find the limited amount of that is really effectively uh, utilized. Um, and I mean, I guess talking about Paul W.S. Anderson a little bit more, um, are you, have you watched any of his other films uh, previously? Um, or? I think I've watched Mortal Kombat. That was him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And I think Soldier with Kurt Russell. Yeah. So I think um, more of his older works, um, not has much his newer pieces. Did he do like Doom? Was that him? He didn't do Doom, but he did do those Resident Evil movies. Um, so yeah, he's somebody yeah, yeah, that yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and he did Monster Hunter. Um, you know, he did AVP. He did Death Race. He's a director uh, that I'm kind yeah. of like, I don't know. I have a conflicted sort of view on his filmography at large because when I look at a film like Event Horizon, this is such a it seems like such a well thought out, very organized series of genre tropes and these things. I guess that's the best way to put it. Uh, and it is genuinely scary and it looks fantastic. I don't know if I feel the same way about most of his other films, but most of his other films have been tied to pre-existing IPs. And mm, 
Yeah. I can't watch a lot of those movies without seeing studio interference. Whereas, you know, while Event Horizon uh, restricted amount of time to be edited, there was a great deal of cutting that went on and all these things. It had its share of influence from the studio, but I just don't associate the, that final product with a majority of his newer filmography. Like I enjoyed mm-hmm. Monster Hunter as a kaiju monster beat up movie. Yeah. Um, but like the, a lot of those Resident Evil movies that he made don't work for me. They just feel all over the place. They feel unorganized in a way that, you know, Event Horizon just feels like it for as silly and grandiose as it can be at times. It still feels like something that never truly, you know, lose sight of where it's going, if you yeah. will. Um, yeah. And I haven't seen Soldier, but i would seen um, Mortal Kombat even. It was just kind of like, sure, I, I came to it late, to be fair. I came, to, I watched it last year for the first time. I'd never seen yeah. it. Um, <laughs> and was able to like have fun with it. But every time I see one of his movies, I was like, damn, I would love for him to go back and make something that is weird and over the top and very, you know, pulpy like Event Horizon. And I just don't know if we'll get another movie like this from him because I don't know. It. I guess maybe Resident Evil IP pays too well or something like that. But I just... <laughs> I would love to see his unique brand of, you know, just realized horror, but in a setting that maybe it's not as familiar with. Like the haunted house in space thing is a very easy way to describe this movie and it's accurate, but it's so much more than that. I just feel like there's a lot more depth in bringing that world to life in a way that doesn't make it feel just like a marketing blurb. It really does kind of like have that at its core in the best ways possible. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe what kind of played a part was also um, the um, Philip Eisner, I think, who wrote the script, uh, was at the point at that point of time. I think he was uh, he had he was going through like a tragedy. I think he had lost like some kind of loss, um, and uh, but he was also locked into a contract, so he had to like um, you know deliver something uh and then he kind of you know was encouraged and then you know this was one of the outcome uh, so i don't know if perhaps um he just he it was uh it was a moment in time where you he got all these collaborators um and it kind of created this product right he could Mm. get all these people and you know and they could deliver in this way right like even i think the guy who was doing the set design was actually really uh inexperienced but managed to kind of pull it together right so um yeah so i think i mean i think uh it perhaps succeeded because it had all these other things guiding it as well right i don't know about the newer movies right i mean uh the people who are attached to it right um also i think um perhaps now studio interference i think is much bigger uh than what it was in the 90s i mm. don't think you know i think i think i could very believe that he would deliver um a <laughs> A film that would make audiences faint, and then the studio <laughs> X will come in and be like, "Okay, guys, I think we need to cut some stuff out, right?" At that yeah. point, right? But before that, have no interference at all, right? Compared to how it is these days, where you know, um, even like you know, when uh, we're talking about Raimi, right, and his return, uh, to horror with uh, Doctor Strange, right? Was it mm. Doctor Strange? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there was a lot of talk about like studio interference, right, and and all these things. So I think sometimes, you know, um, the Event Horizon succeeds not just of because of Anderson, but I think because of all the people that he happened to get at that point of time that mm. kind of made it the film that it is, right? So even like this 
inexperienced guy, you know, supposed to work on the set design turned out <laughs> did a fantastic job, right? Mm. You know, um, compared to I guess what I don't know, like what. <laughs> who he's working with now right who, which is perhaps more studio directed and you know maybe he doesn't have have as much say in things you know yeah. um yeah and i wouldn't characterize him as being you know less successful now if anything he's more successful with yeah. you know, again being tied to those ips <laughs> and those movies you know those resident evil movies that I'm not crazy about have their audience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, clearly it's an established franchise and keeps getting those sequels and keeps, you know, keeping the, some of the, the Resi fans happy. But it is the type of thing that as somebody that enjoyed an earlier work of his that was arguably one of his best, but also probably his weirdest film he's ever made. Um, it's just disappointing to not really see a clear path to maybe returning to something similar to that. And we can speculate why uh, Why he, we won't see another film like this probably from him, but it's just the type of thing where this feels like such a unique film in that it plays around, again, with genres that we're familiar with, but executes on it in a way that feels distinctly unique. Um, and really, you know, I have they I described it as being Hellraiser in space. They did make a Hellraiser movie that was in space, and it's nowhere near as good as this one. Yeah. Uh, which, then again, <laughs> that's like a 12-movie franchise, so that kind of tells you where the, uh, the bar is at. But... I just overall, like Event Horizon does such a good job, I find, of capitalizing on its space setting in a way that not all horror movies do. You know, some of them do. Fine. They have those creature feature movies in space or these different things in space. But like a haunted house movie in space kind of sounds like a horror fan's best dream, right? The best dream yeah. scenario or pitch for something. And to have Event Horizon not only like tease at what that could be early on, but then really do, does sell it and deliver it in that final act. Um, I mean, that bridge scene is, you know, rightfully very shocking and gruesome and grotesque, but I don't know if it hits the same way if it doesn't have, again, the buildup and all the tension that goes into building to that moment, because otherwise it ends up maybe just being like something you roll your eyes at or be like, oh yeah, this is like kind of funny. It's so aggressive. I mean, that's how yeah. I might view it if it doesn't have, again, that buildup and that tension and retaining a good amount of the character's humanity leading up to that point. Because then when, you know, they start befalling their fate, uh, it does, especially, you know, in the case of uh, a character such as, not Cooper, but uh, uh, Peters, right? When Peters dies, it's okay, yes, she's dying and it's a horrible death, but you start to think about like the child that's back on earth also. And you think about maybe the ramifications of people dying and what could potentially, you know, their, the trauma, I suppose that their families are going to have to deal with in their deaths uh, of meeting an untimely demise, if you will. Yeah. I don't know. I always thought that the child was dead <laughs> because, uh, because of her attachment with Justin, with like baby boy I don't know like uh, I felt there was some projection there um, but you're right I mean we, we, it's mystery right so we don't really know what happened to the boy yeah I thought I, um, yeah. I thought the kid was alive because she mentions early on that she's not going to have him for um, for Christmas yeah I thought that he was still alive. But I mean, when you do think about it, again, coming back to that, not everything is fully explained in the way that, you know, maybe some people would like. But I think I I definitely appreciate a little more kind of just uh, a little more mystery tied into everything. Uh, like with the first time she hallucinates him, she sees him and he's got these like lesions all over his legs and these things. Yeah. And like, 
is that something that's just meant to upset her as a mother and a parent? Or is that something that's tied to that child's reality? Does it have some type of, you know, affliction or disease or something that the child yeah. suffers from? And, you know, that amount of vagueness surrounding that I like because it's the type of thing it's like there could be greater significance or perhaps it's just to upset the audience along with that character. Um, yeah. And that sort of unknowingness I find to just be tying into the cosmic horror element that I like so much. Uh, this yeah. is either going to be a very personal attack or it's going to be just an attack that's very upsetting. Um, yeah. As the audience trying to, I don't know, again, if you get all the answers, you stop thinking about things a lot sooner than maybe yeah. a creative team would want you to. Um, and I'm always in favor of movies that, you know, are a little more vague uh, just because then, you know, it takes up permanent real estate in my brain instead of something that I watch once and then never think about again. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you're right, right? I mean, I think she does kind of reference uh, perhaps that he's alive, right? Um, but I, I found it very interesting because I think that a huge theme running through the film, right, is the idea of grief. And a lot of her acting um, felt very much like grief, like she was mourning something, um, you know, and it kind of ties in with Weir as well, right, who was mourning his uh, wife, right, uh, you know, and then uh, Miller as well, right, who was um, dealing with um, the guilt and I think the grief that he felt over abandoning uh, his crew member, right, in a previous ship. Um, yeah, so um, I, the, 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 way, the way it kind of um, uses grief um, has, a, has a means to kind of like um, you know, like the idea is that grief makes you kind of vulnerable, right? And it, the ship kind of uses that as a way, as a medium to kind of, you know, um, intrude into the person's like mental space to kind of haunt them. Um, but what also kind of made me uh, think about this is that when we see Rhea's wife, I think at the beginning, at the beginning of the film, right? And I think he's already on route. They are kind of en route to the ship, right? And he's there and he has like a dream, uh, you know, and uh, in the dream she appears and she doesn't have eyes, right? Um, you know, so on one hand, when we read it, we think, you know, it's uh, basically the ship feels, you know, recognizes that he's coming, right? And then, you know, it's kind of using this as a way to kind of, you know, um, I guess, uh, call him back, lure him back, you know, whatever it is, right? Um, but it also kind of made me think about um, the fact that I think the wife committed suicide, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, and I think when you think of suicide, it is a, it is a sin, right? Uh, and it kind of, it, it playing through my mind, I think, through the movie, I kept thinking about, um, you know, I think Weir's transition, right, from, you know, this man uh, who was still kind of rational and whatever to this, you know, clearly ins mad, insane person. <laughs> um, and I think uh, it also kind of made me think about, you know, like, is his wife in this hell, right? Uh, you know, and um, therefore, uh, you know... Um, yeah, because I think I think the idea is that you know for the most part maybe we think that the hell is imagined that it's just something that you know uh, the ship is kind of using as a way to kind of manipulate them, but at the same time I think the idea of it being a physical space that you know possibly where his wife is is also I think really terrifying to me. So I think um, that 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 opening moment with the wife I think it, I mean it, there's not many of these moments with him and his wife, but I think it sets it up so well 
right? Uh, I think the, the the recurring themes and uh, you know later on the the very notion of this hell, you know, um, and whether or not she is being, I guess, tortured because of his neglect, his abandonment of her, you know, her, you know, her, why did she kill herself? You know, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. How do you read that? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely, I read it very similarly in that hell is less of this place that is like very easy to characterize. It's very sort of, you know, fire and brimstone. It's not that. It is, hell is a very personal hell for each person that comes into contact with, you know, this entity, this cosmic horror, which is really for me at the root of why cosmic horror is so terrifying in that there is a threat, but the threat is something that's unique to you. Um, And that's probably why, you know, again, it's very difficult for characters when they encounter these things to ever be able to fully explain it to somebody so they would understand it. The amount of time, it would take a lifetime for them to explain why specific things could be terrifying or why something resonates and is very like torturous for them personally, which in a way it might not be for someone else. Um, Granted, when (laughs) the end of the movie, when uh, Weir is, you know, fully demonic uh, and whatnot, yeah, and, and naked and eyeless and all cut up. Um, when he gives, you know, Captain Miller a view of the fate that's going to befall the cast, that is much more of, you know, traditional people are wrapped in barbed wire and they're like skewered on those spikes and all of these things that are very shocking and disturbing. But again, what sticks with me more so than that imagery is just how personal everything is. And specifically Weir, like he's a character that, you know, for being the ultimate antagonist of the movie, I guess, of course, the event horizon is the true antagonist, but, you know, as being the second in command, if you will, carrying out the ship's will, it's the type of thing where you still feel a sense of sympathy for him, perhaps, in that loss, in the fact that, you know, what he did, if he had reacted differently or behaved differently, perhaps he would not have befalled this tragedy of, you know, his wife dying from suicide, Maybe she still would have committed suicide. You don't know that, but it's sort of you get to see the pain that he carries. And then again, that's like exemplified by the fact the ship exploits that, which then, you know, at the same time, while he does, you know, lash out at the crew and try to, you know, give the ship a new crew, essentially, at the same time, you're like, well, this was a person that's largely being manipulated by the ship itself. But at the same time, you know, you want to root for Lawrence Fishburne and all of these characters to make it out alive at the end of the day. Um, But it's definitely a role that when I think about Sam Neill, it feels like a standout role because I, I and maybe it's because I haven't watched a great deal of his like older movies outside of maybe some of his uh, most notable accolades. But I just I don't see him being in a, a lot of horror movies, but also just a genre movie and playing a villain in one. Um, I'm sure there's examples, but it's just in my experience with him, I always kind of subscribe to, uh, you know, Jurassic Park or something like that. Yeah. With this movie to have him be the almost the central antagonist of the second half of the film, um, it just it makes for a really interesting performance that catches me off guard. Because, again, as you said, with Lawrence Fishburne, right, he has this very Shakespearean approach to material that is, you know, genre fair at best, which is not a knock. It's just what it is. And it's why his character comes off as strong as it does, because he's treating this like it's the most serious thing he's ever read when at the end of the day, it's a haunted house movie in space, right? Um, And Sam Neill carries it the same way. Not only does he look terrifying, but when he delivers that line, right, where we're going, we won't need eyes to see. 
that's a pretty chilling and terrifying line for, again, a movie that's about a spaceship and hell portals and hell dimensions and all of these things. Um, but I think one thing that we didn't really mention that I want to briefly is just the fact that the ship itself being a haunted house that's sentient, you know, mm. that's kind of like a, obviously an element of all haunted houses, but there's something about a ship going to a far part of space and coming back as this living thing that I kind of almost wish the movie had gone into a little bit more, just kind of the relationship with technology and how we think that we're the masters of technology. But if you send it to uncharted places, that relationship might change for the worse for us. Uh, yeah. Be better for the machines and technology, but not for the humans. Um, yeah. That's just an element that I really like about that. And it makes the ship, which is maybe like a stock standard prop in some regards, it makes it terrifying in a new way, uh, a way that, you know, something like the Nostromo and Alien certainly never was. Um, but I really like that element of the film as well. Yeah. I think, I mean, uh, currently I teach, like I currently I teach English Renaissance Lit, right? And, you know, we, we always talk to the kids about uh, the great chain of being, right? And the idea of how, um, you know, um, man should control his hubris, right? And kind of, you know, think about how uh, he acts or how he behaves. And it basically has to fall within this great chain of being with God being at the top, you know, so don't do things that kind of circumvent God's intention or, you know, you know what it is, right? Uh, and I think um, the playing of themes here with, you know, definitely a sense of some aspect of religion and God here, you know, evoked through the idea of hell, right? And the, all the, the dimensions of it. And then the idea of science, right? Um, and man's ambitions and man's pursuits, um, uh, you know, and man's, uh, I think, hubris, right? Uh, just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? And I think at the end of the day, Weir did not, I think, was not accountable in that sense, right? Uh, you know, he he invented something that shouldn't have been invented, um, you know, um, in order to kind of, you know, further, I think, man's exploration of space, right? And then kind of led them to explore parts of it that they should not have been doing in the first place, right? And stumble into something, you know, horrifying and, you know, yeah, unimaginable. So I always think about this um, a lot, I think, with, with I think, sci-fi films, uh, you know, the idea of um, always kind of understanding, I think, limits. And uh, I don't know, and I guess the, the, the religious themes kind of worked really well in this context, yeah. The type of conversation we're having too. I just I haven't gone back and read a great deal of those uh, those those reviews that made up that thirty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. But <laughs> yeah, it seems you know. And granted, I have a great bias for horror uh, and specifically subgenres. And I mean, space horror is one of my favorite subgenres. It is the thing where you know, if you look at this movie from a surface level glance, it's very easy to describe. It's very easy maybe to call out some of its faults or elements of it that you've seen before that are very familiar, but you know, at the same time, we're having a conversation about it in more depth. And yes, it's terrifying, but there's more to it than I find than it just being, you know, haunted house in space, which you know yeah. is the easy way to describe it. That's how I describe it to people. But at the same time, there's certain elements of the movie that I think don't necessarily get a fair, a fair shake or get their due, really. Because um, there is a, you know, not only does the film look engaging, but I think that it does tap into that element of horror that 
you know, really does transcend genre. The best horror is the one that makes it personal for the characters and having a semblance of who those people are, even if you don't get the whole backstory. You know, this movie does go the length to establish those things that, you know, we've definitely seen space horror films that are lesser in that regard. One thing also that I think about about this movie that makes it timeless in a way is I don't know how many, you know, big budget sort of genre movies like this that we could get that have a cast of primarily uh, character actors or, you know, even some actors that are maybe uh, operating in like a B tier or something like that. Right. I think that you'd mentioned life, right. Which is a film that I'm kind of 50, 50 on, but the one thing that I can't stand about that movie is how the cast is primarily filled with, you know, not only mostly gorgeous people, but famous people that you're familiar with. And so there is this sort of artificial nature to that movie that I find that in a lot of these types of movies now that they try to make, it's like, well, let's put as many big names in this movie as possible, or let's have these be people that look like movie stars. And this is an element of event. Maybe it sounds like a backhand compliment, but I like that the cast in this for the most part does not come off as like glamorous movie stars. It just feels like a group of people that are coworkers, which, you know, is the best part of what makes Alien work, right, with that crew is that for the most part, back in the day, especially when I saw it for the first time, I didn't know who Sigourney Weaver was. I didn't know who yeah. any of these people were. So I was like, oh, these are just co-workers. These look like people that are kind of, you know, not to put labels on people, but they fit that blue collar role very well for what that movie is. If they had had, you know, some mega star at the time of when that movie came out, it would maybe take me out of the movie more. It wouldn't feel like really a lived in space. It would feel a little more artificial. Kind of like when you mentioned with, uh, you know, scenes that you can specifically tell were shot in a studio. They lack that sort of just operating within, the cameras operating within a space where people go through their normal lives. Whereas with something like life, it all feels a little too perfectly orchestrated i think and you know of course you've got all these gorgeous people walking around so it's like not only is that distracting but how often are you going to kill off some of those people that's another thing when i watch horror movies that have big names in them i was like well sure they might kill that person off eventually but they're definitely going to be in this movie for another 15 20 minutes because they can't kill off a big name like that immediately (laughs) yeah um and I think uh, also I don't I don't know like these older films right they 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 don't rush us immediately to like events or inciting incidents they mm-hmm. let it kind of build like we do we kind of like walk around with the character right like I think you know in Alien um there you know when I think the scene where the acid kind of drops through the you know the floor right and then you know you have these crew members basically going level by level to you know see essentially where the drip ends right uh and they allow us to kind of just go ahead and follow them you know as they as they do that right these tedious tasks right um whereas i think you know if uh it was more modern i think we would cut immediately to the inciting thing and they won't really allow you know they did i don't know is um it's like what you say, it's it's not as, I guess, 
ugly. I don't know how to I how to describe it, but I like like you know that it um that these movies take time to kind of build the space, allow us to kind of follow these characters, even if you know they're just doing mundane things like fixing something, right? Uh, you know, um, and not rushing us to like okay, there's something happening, there's a big deal, you know, oh, there's another another event that's happening, right? Which I think a lot of these newer films kind of seem to do. They feel that they need to keep our attention at all times as opposed to kind of just letting I, I think the story and the space and the people just do the work you know and I think I mean I think that's why Event Horizon still works all these years because I think it it has all those three things right it allows the the people the set to just do the work right and then we just kind of you know watch it unfold yeah absolutely I mean the mundane aspects of those people's day in the life is what makes it feel like a believable space. I mean, Alien, it opens up, right? Them waking up from hypersleep. And what is the first 10 minutes of the movie? It's them sitting around a table and waking up and eating food and just kind of like bullshitting with one another. And (laughs) if you immediately start with them going down to the alien ship and everything, you're like, okay, again, like I described or characterized earlier, it's like, this is basically just meat for the grinder of the monster and whatnot. And each death is essentially meaningless other than maybe getting a cool practical effect moment or sort of like a gory little moment because you can't attribute anything about that person to their death. So you're like, okay, on to the next one. Whereas in this movie, again, it goes the distance in establishing people, establishing their backgrounds enough that it's like, oh, their death is notable, not only because it's personalized for them, but also the ramifications of their death and what that could do for people on earth that are waiting for them or you know, just the rest of the crew and their morale and these things. Um, it's definitely a quality of this movie that uh, I think gets overlooked, and it's why it's probably one of my favorite space horror movies of all time. And I definitely, I definitely appreciate getting to pick your brain about it uh, a little bit more because it is one that you know the horrifying imagery. You know, as somebody that watches lots of horror movies, there's plenty of movies that stick with me, but this one I feel like there's not an overabundance of it. But the ones that are in the film are you know, some of the most gruesome and disturbing things I've seen. And, uh, you know, I hope it wasn't too exploitative of your trauma with this movie to, uh, <laughs> to chat about it. But I definitely appreciate getting to uh, pick your brain about it in a little more depth. Yeah, I think uh, I think all these years, right? Until I think um, last year, and when I came on, um, when we were speaking last on for fresh, and I spoke about this movie, I had thought that I was alone in my trauma. That I didn't. I thought like you know because basically when you when you see like uh, when you go on Rotten Tomatoes and you see the reception to the movie, you think that basically it was this movie that people didn't really like and it wasn't mm-hmm. really really good. And I felt kind of like why was I so scared of a terrible movie, right? Um, you know and then I was thinking do I have like really bad like cinematic taste but um, so until like I think these past few years where um, it seems that it keeps popping up on lists and um, you know I talked to you about it I talked to you know cultured vouchers people about it and everyone's like yeah you know you're not crazy it is scary so uh, I kind of feel um, you know uh, (laughs) comforted (laughs) discussing my trauma because you know (laughs) it's reassuring that you know people can see what I see you know Mm -hmm. yeah that it's not just um, I'm terrified for no reason so I think that's good yeah (laughs) yeah I mean that's part of what I love about the podcast is that I get to have people on and just kind of highlight what about the movie for them personally really stands out from it, right? And I, I kind of have had tried to create the atmosphere on the show where it's like, I'll chat about any, this of course happens to be a movie that I like. I've definitely chatted about movies that 
I haven't enjoyed as much as guests or haven't enjoyed at all. But at the same time, there's still something I think to take out of that. It's like getting to why something resonates, why something sticks with somebody is more interesting than, you know, we sit here and go down a laundry list of kind of like, oh, I like this. Well, I don't like that. And this is why, like, <laughs> I don't find that to be super productive. So I'm always uh, appreciative of a long form conversation about, you know, it happens to be one of my favorite space horror movies. And uh, I was I was happy to have you back to chat about it. So uh, I appreciate your time, Natasha, as always. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. I enjoyed talking about this film. It's definitely one that uh, I'm sure every time I revisit it, uh, something new comes to mind. Uh, it's definitely the movie that uh, has a lot going into it and, you know, hopefully did our small part in kind of highlighting elements of it that maybe critics back in the day didn't necessarily appreciate. But uh, it's a film that holds up better than uh, a lot of its maybe peers in the same subgenre. Yeah. Yeah, if I would review, if I could review it now, I would give it a fresh. It might go up to thirty one percent, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we we can only hope, but we'll keep. Uh, regardless, we'll keep beating that event horizon drum until uh, you know even more people hopefully get to experience it for the first time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at Not Funny Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.